Hello and welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. Ineffective salt and light are just sand and heat. While sand and heat have their place, it's not what God called the church to be. Lead teacher Jeff Norris begins the new series, Salt and Light, God's Vision for the Church, with this sermon entitled, The Identity of the Church, which covers Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 to 16. For more information and to watch or hear other sermons, please visit our website at perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today. Has the church lost its saltiness? Has her light grown dim? What has drawn the gaze of her heart? And to whom are her ears inclined? And to whom do her footsteps follow? Could it be that she has strayed from the truth or that her heart and hands have grown cold? Could it be that she has forgotten who she is, her very reason for existence? What is to become of his bride? Lift your eyes and hear the voice of the Lord. We are his church, children of the light, deliverers of peace, defenders of the weak, refuge for the weary hope of the nations rooted in love. Though prone to wander, we are never lost, and she will forever shine. We are salt and light. It is a new year, and I am genuinely excited about where God's leading us. As I was thinking about, praying about, um, where would God have a start from a teaching standpoint, from his scripture, in 2021, uh, this is where he led me in that pursuit, uh, as far as what you just saw there. Uh, this series on the church, salt and light, uh, the church. What is God's vision for his church? So that's where we're headed in the coming weeks. We're going to spend the month of January thinking and contemplating and digging in on this topic scripturally. Today we're going to be in Matthew but then the rest of the, the month, the last four weeks of this series, uh, we're going to be in the book of Titus. So if you want to be reading Titus on your own, I would encourage you to do so. It's a very short book. You can easily read it in one sitting very quickly, probably within 10 minutes. Uh, but we're going to spend four weeks in that short book uh, thinking about what God's design and vision and purpose for his church is. Uh, so I'm encouraged, excited about where he's leading us to, to set us in that trajectory this morning. I'll share this with you. Um, when you think about, uh, for me personally, what are some of the most significant stories that have impacted me in my life? Obviously, the story, the real true story of the gospel, of the redemption that we have in the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus is first and foremost. There's another story, though, that mimics that story, that's a redemption story that's uh, encapsulated, captured for us on a, in a Broadway play called Les Miserables. And it's my favorite Broadway play. Uh, there is no second. There's not, if there is a second, it's very distant. I love this story. I've watched it numerous times on the stage. Um, well, I wasn't on the stage. I watched them do it on the stage. And then, uh, but I, then I watched the movie that came out a few years back with Hugh Jackman. 
And I love it. I can't get enough of it. I listen to the soundtrack often and, uh, and listen to those words. It's a story of, uh, of redemption, of renewal, surrender, of sacrifice, of identity. That last word that I just said, that's, that's what I want to focus in on this morning, and that's really a big part of that Les Mis story. The main character in Les Mis is Jean Valjean. Many of you know as you've seen it. Some of you are wondering what in the world I'm talking about right now. But it's set in 19th century France leading up to the French Revolution. And Jean Valjean being the main character, uh, it starts with him in prison. And he'd been in prison for 19 years. And don't think sitting in a jail cell prison. Uh, think uh, servanthood, slavery. Working hard uh, under the rule in the whip of the cruel Javert. And you would think, well, certainly Jean Valjean was a hardened criminal. That's why he was in prison for 19 years. But actually, in the system of the day that uh, was there in France, he was in prison because as a poor man, he had stolen a loaf of bread to try and feed his family. And that landed him in prison. After 19 years, he is granted parole and he's set free back out into society. But the problem is he doesn't feel free because he has this moniker on him now. He has this title on him now that is convicted felon. And so he assumes that identity, even though he's free, he's not free because he can't fit back into society. He doesn't know where to go. He has nowhere. He's no home. So what does he do? Well, as the story goes, this priest takes him in and the priest feeds him and clothes him and gives him room and board, a place to stay. But Jean Valjean only knows the identity of thief now. And so in his rationale, in light of this identity that he's now embraced over the course of these 19 years, he thinks the only way I can make it is I've got to get some money and the only way I can get some money is to steal. And so he takes the finest silver from this priest and his wife. He's captured the next day. And he tells the authorities this story that, well, no, 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 I was with the priest and he gave it to me. So they bring Jean Valjean back to the priest to see if his story is true. They bring him before the priest and they said, this man says that you gave this silver to him. And the priest unexpectedly says, I most certainly did. And in fact, he didn't take everything that I told him to take. Why didn't you take this and this? And he gives him more of his fine silver. And as the authorities release him back to the priest, the priest says to him, in essence, Jean Valjean, you are not who you think you are. And then he says verbatim, I have purchased your soul for God. Now, theologically, that's not accurate. We cannot purchase a soul for one another for God. But what that priest did was this. He, he displayed a grace, a mercy, a love towards Jean Valjean that caught him completely off guard. And what he did, in essence, is he spoke a new identity into Jean Valjean. From there on out, his life his aim, his purpose was new. It was different, new trajectory of life for him and a new identity through the beauty and the marvel of grace. 
Now, later in the play, Jean Valjean is a successful manager of a factory. He's taken on this new identity and he begins to grapple with his old self versus his new self. And I'll let you watch the story if you're not familiar with it as to why he's grappling. Something happened that made him go, am I that man or am I this man? And how do I embrace who I am? But the essence of what's happening within him is he's asking the question, who am I? It's the name of the song that's so famous if you're familiar with it. Who am I? Right around 2,000 years ago, Jesus spoke a new identity into his disciples. This ragtag group of men that he had gathered together, some fishermen, some public office workers, some zealots, some others that we aren't for sure exactly what they did, but he brings these men together and they have all kinds of identities based upon what the culture has labeled them to be. And he says to them, but this is who I say you are. And he speaks a new identity into them. And they become the very beginnings, the seed of the church. And through them and through the teachings of Jesus in them and through them, we assume the same identity that Jesus gave them. He said to them, you are salt and light. He said this in Matthew chapter 5. Now, this is the beginning part of the most famous sermon uh, that we have from Jesus. We have a lot of teachings of Jesus captured for us in the, in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But it's Matthew 5 through 7. Those chapters have for, for us the longest sermon of Jesus. It's, it's famously called the Sermon on the Mount. And what I just told you that he said to his disciples, that therefore he's saying to us as his disciples, the salt and light part, that's huge, it's significant, but it comes after something that's even more significant perhaps, and it's called the Beatitudes. If you pick up with me in chapter five, verse one, I'm sorry, verse two of Matthew, uh, listen, I'm not sure that this will be on the screen, but the Beatitudes part, and then you'll see that as we get to our text today, it'll come up on the screen. But chapter five, verse two, Jesus starts his sermon with some crazy teaching. By the way, I'm going to do a series one day. I haven't decided. I might just call it the crazy teachings of of Jesus. But if you read through the Gospels, there's a lot of things that Jesus says that you kind of just pause and go, can he say that? Does does he mean what he says there? Does, does Does that mean when I think it? That's hard. That's different than what I expected. And he starts this sermon, this famous sermon on the mount with something very unexpected. And he says this, verse two, and he opened his mouth and taught them saying, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. 
Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then verse 11, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil and against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And then our text for today, verse 13, you are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its, salt, its taste or saltiness, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Father, would you bless the reading and the teaching of your word? We ask just very simply but very profoundly, O oh God, that you would pour out your spirit in this place. You'd fill me with your spirit, empower me to speak what comes from you. And would you soften hearts and ears to hear and receive your word this morning. We pray and ask that you do so unto your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So Church of Jesus, followers of Christ, if that's who you are, we always have many among us each Sunday and joining online who are investigating the faith, which we say thank you for being here. We welcome you. We're so glad you're among us. But if you've believed upon Jesus, surrendered your life to him by faith, then that means that you are a part of the church of Jesus Christ. And who are we? In the same way that Jean Valjean was contemplating, who am I? We say, who are we? Who, who does Jesus say that we are? And what we see right here in this text, very simply, is that we are the salt of the earth and we are the light of the world. Now, what does he mean by that? What does it mean that we're the salt of the earth and that we're the light of the world? Well, to, to understand it, we have to think about the context first. And so I read the Beatitudes to you, the, the many statements of who those who are blessed are that Jesus tells us. And what those Beatitudes are is he lays out for us, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the meek, blessed are the peacemakers, blessed are the merciful, so on and so forth, the persecuted as he lays that out, we begin to see that what he's establishing off the very beginning, the very uh, foundation of his sermon, that thousands are listening to at this point, there on the, sermon, on the mount, is he's establishing what is the character of one who is in the kingdom of Jesus. In other words, what is the heart attitude, if you will, of those who follow Christ, who are part of his kingdom and so he lays that out in those first 12 verses, first 11 and 12 verses, so that we would be a people who are totally different from what they would expect kingdom people to be. Now, I've said this so much recently over the past year on Sunday mornings, but I'm going to keep saying it. Hopefully, we'll finally be able to fully get it. But they did not expect a kingdom that would have the character, the characteristics that Jesus has just laid out here. When you think about what he's laid out, when he says, okay, look, here's what my kingdom is about. It's about those who are blessed 
by being poor in spirit, by those who mourn, by those who are meek, hunger and thirst for righteousness, merciful, pure in heart, peacemakers, persecuted. These are a people that are wanting a king to come in power. A king who's coming in riding his stallion with his sword and saying, we are the proud who will take back the kingdom that was taken from us from Rome. We will not mourn those days that we didn't have a king. The king is back mourning no more. And Jesus stands as the one who says, I in the light of the world. I am the one you've been longing for. I am the long-awaited Messiah. Blessed are those who mourn. And they say, what? Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the peacemakers. Well, well, hold on, hold on. Our king, the Messiah, was coming to make war with our enemies. What is he talking about? He's talking about an upside-down kingdom that is in opposition to what we would create if we were to create a kingdom. So he's talking about the heart characteristics, what's true at the heart level of those who are in the kingdom. That's the first 12 verses. Then verse 13 through 16 is, so this is what comes out of that. That's the heart level. This is the outward manifestation of what's going on in the Beatitudes. It's that we are a people, individually and most importantly, collectively, who are salt and light. The salt of the earth, the light of the world. So let's think about it. Those two elements, salt and light. What is, what is Jesus saying? What are we to understand about these? Uh, we'll start with salt. In the ancient world, uh, salt was a valuable valuable commodity. We have salt anywhere, everywhere around us. Every restaurant we go in, every home, easy to pick up at the grocery store, cheap. But in that day and time, salt was valuable. It was used as a preservative, a cleanser, a disinfectant, an offering, and even a way of currency in certain trade deals. But if it lost its saltiness, it was worth nothing. You go, okay, how is that even possible? Like how does salt lose its saltiness? What's Jesus talking about? Well, again, we got, as Bible readers, we always have, uh, have to put ourselves in first century Israel or wherever the story is taking place. The, the ancient near Middle East, uh, not 21st century world that we're in now. Don't think table salt, okay? Table salt consists of 97%, roughly, 97% sodium chloride, okay? It's not going to lose its saltiness. It's pure salt. But the salt of this day, the audience that Jesus is speaking to, they would gather most of them, especially in Jerusalem in, this, in the area of Galilee, the areas that weren't near the Mediterranean Sea, but were near the Dead Sea, they would gather their salt from the Dead Sea. Full of minerals. So, many, so much so you've seen it. You've seen pictures or maybe you've been there. You float because of all the minerals in the Dead Sea. One of the minerals in the Dead Sea is salt. So they would extract salt from the swamps and the lowlands and the sea itself in that day and time. Now that, studies have shown, that salt only roughly was comprised of roughly about 15% sodium chloride, which is what we know as salt today. Which means when they would buy a block of salt to be used in their homes, 
it was about 15-ish percent what we would know as salt today. And what would happen, it wasn't all that common, but it would certainly happen, is it was possible for moisture to leach away the sodium chloride in that block, to extract, if you will, the salt. And at that point, the salt, the tablet of salt, will have lost its saltiness, and it's not useful anymore. So Jesus is saying, look, you know, if that happens, if you don't keep it dry, if the moisture sucks out the sodium chloride, you don't have salt. You may have something that looks like salt, but you don't have salt. And why is that so significant? Why do you need salt in first century Israel? Because there's no refrigerators. There's no freezers. One of the very main purposes of salt in that time was to preserve food. So this is the first thing to see about salt. Salt comes from the Greek word uh, halos, which I just throw that up there because pastors do that to show that we've done our homework. Um, Salt is for seasoning food. Now, seasoning is, is a word that I probably shouldn't have used because that's like, oh, to make it taste better. There is that component going on here in first century Israel as well. They wanted things to taste good just like we do. I put salt on my eggs this morning, made them way better. They did that too. But the main thing that they did with salt was to preserve their food because there was no way to preserve it otherwise. Uh, one way to think about salt is it had, a, it had an effect on food that limited and resisted the decay that was natural to the food. The deterioration of the food, salt would work against. And so you would season food for preservation, and of course you would season food for flavor. But it's mainly this preservation point that Jesus is hitting on here where he's saying, look, if you don't have salt, in your block that you've bought from the market, what do you have? You can't preserve your food. You can't use it for cleansing purposes, to cleanse a wound. It was used as an antiseptic in that way. You're just rubbing minerals that don't work on your body or on your food that are not gonna do what it's supposed to do. And so he says this, throw it out. It's better for paving roads than it is for using on food. Luke, in chapter 14, he actually records this for us. And he records Jesus is saying that it's not even useful for the manure pile. That's how worthless it is if it loses its saltiness. Here's another thing that his first century audience would have understood. Another purpose of salt in that time was to season it, if you will. Really, a better word is is, is sprinkle, but salt for seasoning or sprinkling sacrifices. So the sacrifices that they would take to the temple to make atonement for their sins, the sacrifice that had to be made, they would sprinkle salt on it. So don't miss this. They're, if, they're, if, if those in his audience are connecting the dots, what Jesus is saying is he says, look, if you are the salt of the earth, that means what I'm asking you to do is sprinkle yourself, so to speak, with salt that you would be a living sacrifice. That you would die to self, that you would die to this world and be reborn into my kingdom, dying to self for the sake of new life and for the sake of others. In fact, that passage I just quoted to you from Luke chapter 14, where he says it's not even, if it loses its saltiness, it's not even useful for the manure pile. It comes right after the, the teaching of Jesus on the cost of discipleship, 
where he says, if anyone wants to follow me, he must take up his cross daily and follow me. He must die unto himself. That's salt. The sprinkling of salt that I may be a living sacrifice, as Romans 12 says, in this new kingdom as a follower of Christ. Now, where is this most prominently lived out? Being salt, being the salt of the earth is lived out primarily in our relationships. In our one-on-one, life-on-life, everyday relationships with those that God has sovereignly and providentially placed among us. We are to be the salt of the earth. What does that mean? Well, Scripture teaches us this. As you continue reading through the New Testament, the apostles press in what this means. Look at uh, Colossians uh, 4, 5, and 6, where it talks about the first point of what this looks like is, uh, go back first to the point. Sorry, I misled you. Being the salt of the earth is lived out primarily in relationships. We are to be seasoned with salt in our conduct and speech. Okay, you may go, well, yeah, of course, but think about this. Think about what this means for my life every day. That if I'm to be seasoned with salt, that means first and foremost, it's in my conduct and how I live and in how I speak. Look at Colossians 4. It says this, conduct yourselves wisely toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt. There it is, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Conduct yourselves wisely toward outsiders. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt. We're also to be seasoned with salt in our pursuit of peace with one another. In Mark chapter 9, when he records this teaching of Jesus, he says, Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? But then he records Jesus teaching this that Matthew didn't record. Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. In other words, in a world that is dead set on hatred and division, the salty Christian is devoted to peace. Sound familiar? The way we live out our saltiness The way we are to be salty is first and foremost in our relationships, the ways in which we interact with one another. Now, it's funny to me. Somebody said after the first service, said every time you said be salty, I'm thinking about either one person said, I'm thinking about that blue choir book from the 80s, Salty the Singing Songbook. Or I'm thinking about some old curmudgeon who's salty in the way that they act. And I said, forget both of those. We're not talking about either one of those. We're talking about the essence of the kingdom of God manifested into the people of God who have been redeemed by Jesus, who are living in their conduct, in their speech, in such a way to the world around them that there is a thirst being created. There is a saltiness that is being sprinkled upon them in such a way to where they begin to long for something that you have that they can't fully explain until you reveal it to them. There's also a preservation work that's being done among the church, through the church and to the world around us. 
That as we live out our lives and the relationships around us, we're doing a preserving work of the spiritual moral decay around us. The world would be much worse off if there weren't the church. Ideally, that's true. If the church is being the church. Think about the context of who Jesus is speaking to. When he's gathered there at the rim of the Sea of Galilee and he's talking upwards into this natural kind of amphitheater setting of the Sermon on the Mount and these thousands are gathered on the grassy hillside, there are many, many scribes and Pharisees within earshot who are listening to what Jesus is saying and are deeply disturbed by what he's saying because he's talking to them primarily. When he says, if salt has lost its saltiness, what good is it? It's worth nothing. He's talking primarily to them. Why? Because they're the religious people of the day. They're the quote unquote church of the day. They're the religious institution of the day. And there was nothing salty about them. There was nothing that the world looked at with the scribes and the Pharisees and says, give me more of that. Give me more law. Give me more religious performance. Give me more condemnation. Give me more things that I can't do or ever measure up to. Yes. Sign me up. When do I show up at the temple? There was no saltiness among the scribes and Pharisees. And he says, if that's you, throw it out. Worth nothing. It's not apples to apples. We're not the scribes and Pharisees. But I do wonder, and I prayerfully consider, what would the Lord look at now in the American church And say, oh my goodness, you have lost your saltiness. You've made church all about a gathering to come and consume rather than a mission to go out and live. Oh my goodness, where's your saltiness? Where's your passion for taking the salt of Jesus Christ to those who are thirsty among you? And then there's light, the light of the world. Light comes from the Greek phos, which means to shine or make manifest, to emanate. The Bible tells us five important things about light. It tells us a lot more than five. I'm just going to give you five. Real quickly here, let's, let's, and these build upon one another to make the point. First, God is light. First John 1 John 1.5 says, God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. Okay, so God himself is described as light. We have pictures of, of those who have had visions of God in the scriptures where they're standing before the majesty and the brilliance and the radiance of the Shekinah glory of God and the brightness is of such that they are blinded. God is light. In him, there is no darkness at all. Secondly, Jesus is the light of the world. He says that verbatim in John chapter 8, verse 12, one of the famous I am statements of Jesus, where this is where he would say things like, I am the bread of life. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Those kind of things. And one of his statements is, I am the light of the world, which is profound when you consider the context of which he said that. 
I wish I could give you more detail, but just very simply, he said that during the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles, which one of the things that they would do each year during the Feast of Booths was they would fill the entire city of Jerusalem with light. They would have all these candle operas up in the temple and all throughout every home to where it was literally a city on a hill. And no matter where you were, no matter where you were around Jerusalem, you could see the light emanating for miles around. And it was one of the most beautiful, historians say, beautiful celebrations that the ancient world ever knew. And it's in the context of the Feast of Booze that Jesus stands up in John chapter eight and says, by the way, I'm the light of the world. And they go, what? He's trying to make this celebration that we've been doing for years, centuries, generations. That was established for us in the days of Moses. And he's saying it's about him? And he says, yeah, 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 yeah. Listen, Jerusalem and the light that it emanates in the Feast of Booths is nothing compared to my church. And the city on a hill she is gonna be as she emanates the light of the King Jesus to the entire world. You, disciples of Jesus, you are the light of the world. Thirdly, Christ indwells all believers. So we're the light of the world, but how does that even happen? Is that through our effort? No, no, no. it's through Christ in us. Galatians 2.20, Paul says, I am crucified with Christ and I no longer live but Christ lives in me, his spirit, the Holy Spirit of Christ dwelling within us. Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. So Christ is in us. So you got God is light. You got the son of God incarnate. Jesus is light. And then what do we have? We have Jesus in us and dwelling us. So therefore we can say forth, that his church is the light of the world. As he lives in us as the light, we corporately together as the church become the light. And that's mainly a corporate thing. Now, individually, of course, we live out the light of Jesus, but each of us individually are a light of Christ. But the church, many parts, one body, the body of Christ, we're the light the light of the world. The fifth thing that the scriptures tell us about light that I wanna to highlight today is that the word of God is light. Psalm 119, 105, if you grew up in church as a kid, this might've been the first verse you memorized. I memorized it in the King James Version many years ago. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. The word of God. Preserve for us in the scriptures here that we hold. What a privilege, what a joy. So many in the, in the history of Christianity were not able to hold and possess and read at their will and their liberty, the scriptures. It's the light. So what can we say about the church then in light of salt and of light? We can say this. We can say the church is a people devoted to his word, seasoned with salt, empowered by his spirit, manifesting his light to a world lost in darkness. Let me read that one more time. The church is a people devoted to his word, seasoned with salt, empowered by his spirit, manifesting his light to a world lost in darkness. There's an illuminating power that light brings, an illuminating hope that light 
brings. Did you notice that Jesus says uh, how foolish it would be to light a lampstand or light a candle, light an oil lamp, and then cover it up? How foolish that would be. Why? Because the whole point is that you would light it so that it would then illuminate and give light to the whole house. Now, we go, wait, hold on. We're living in the world where you flip a switch and light comes on and illuminates the whole room. He was living in a world where the majority of his hearers live in one-room homes. And they have one lamp. And at nighttime, you light that lamp and it fills up the entire room. How foolish to waste your oil and light that lamp and then put something over it that doesn't illuminate, that doesn't shine, that doesn't manifest. When I was in fifth grade, um, the fifth grade class, the whole fifth grade class at the school I grew up in, the, the field trip every year was to a nearby place called Overton Farms. It was not a farm. It was settled into a part of what's called the Dismal, Dismal's Canyon, which is a, actually a national forest in northwest uh, Alabama. Beautiful. Nobody knows about it, but gorgeous. In this canyon, right outside of Overton Farms, there were caves. And the fifth grade trip, the field trip every year, was that they would take the entire class and they would take professional cavers and splunkers and they would lead us through the cave. And I was so excited about going into this cave. And they tell you, wear the oldest clothes and shoes that you have because you're going to get nasty. And so we go into the cave and at first the light from the back big entrance of the cave is shining in. But it wasn't too long before you get to the part of the cave where it's completely dark and we have these little headlamps and they said, turn your headlamps on and you did. And it was a little eerie, but you still could see. But we would get to this point in the cave and it was, I remember it was a point in the cave where um, we're crawling in a space about this big and we're just shimmying on our tummies and they tell, tummies? Did I just say stomach? Anyway, so <laughs> that was for the little ones in the room. Um, and they tell us to turn our headlights off. Now, Lamps. What am I saying? Headlamps, not headlamps. We didn't have cars in the caves. Anyway, they tell us to turn the headlamps off and you're, you're on your face basically in the darkness. Now things like this won't fly. If you do this in school now that you get sued, right? It wouldn't, but they scared the mess out of us. And it was pitch black, dark. And the whole exercise was Touch the person's foot in front of you, listen for their voice, and work together as a team to get through the darkness. And you're like, okay, can I go back? What are we doing? But you get through it, and you come out the other side, and it opens up, and literally at the end of the tunnel, there's a light. And it's little, and it's faint, but that's all I could fixate on. I was just like, get me to the light. Let's move. We're walking through this creek that's about shin deep. And we're just moving. I'm like, light, light, light. I didn't like the darkness and I'm filthy. I want to be clean. And the light was drawing me because I had experienced the darkness. That's the church. There's people all around us who are flat on their face. They don't know it, but they are. And they're covered in the muck and the mire of life. And they don't realize it, but they're in complete darkness. And they keep grasping at things around them thinking, okay, that's it. That's it. That's what I need. That's what I need. And the more they crawl, the dirtier they get. And the more they realize that's not what I need. And then what is the only thing that the scriptures say is going to draw their attention to the one thing that cleanses them? 
It's the church who manifests the light of the glory of Jesus to them. It's the church. The world needs the church. If, big if, the church is being the church. If the church is being salty. If the church is being light. But if the church is full of people who first and foremost are not at the heart level of people who are poor in spirit, the people who mourn, the people who are meek, the people who are merciful, the people who are pure in heart, the people who are peacemakers, the people who are persecuted because they live in such a way that the world does not understand but yet is uniquely and unexplainably drawn to. You remember how the Beatitudes ends? Think about the context here, again, of what Jesus is doing. He ends the Beatitudes with this right here. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And then straight into, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. What's Jesus doing here? He's saying verse 16 cannot be read without the context of verses 10, 11, and 12. What's verse 16? In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your Facebook posts and give glory to your Father. It says in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. What context are the good works done in? Throughout the history of the church, the context of good works are most palpable, are most received, are most powerful when the church is being persecuted. We don't want it. We don't ask for it. We don't long for it. But when it comes, we receive it. God has laid a groundwork for us in 2020 that we didn't want. We didn't ask for it. I don't know one person that in January of 2020 was saying, Lord, bring chaos. But he's given it to us. And he's laid a groundwork for the church in 2021 and beyond to be a beacon of light and a people of salt like we haven't been able to be in years. To move towards the hurting, to love in ways that the world will not love, to serve in ways that are unique to the world around us, to be something among the world that they desperately long for but don't know it 
and that's Jesus. Listen, I said it with salt, I'll say it again with light. Where is this primarily lived out? It's primarily lived out in relationships. Philippians, 4, Philippians 2, 14 and 15 says this, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. William Hendrickson, one of my favorite commentators, says this, says, Worldly people will take note of the quiet trust in God manifested by believers in times of trial and distress. Around 200 AD, there's a guy named Tertullian, one of the early church fathers in the midst of great persecution on the church. He said this, he says, but it is mainly the deeds of a love so noble that lead many to put a brand upon us. See, they say, how they love one another. For they themselves, now he's talking about the non-Christians, they themselves are animated by mutual hatred. But see how the Christians are ready even to die for one another. For they themselves would rather be put to death. Here's the point. We have an opportunity in 2021 to be the church. To be salt and light. Oftentimes at the beginning of a year, and I haven't seen anybody doing this so far, I think because we're just so, so like, man, we tried that in 2020. Look where that got us. But you know how people pick words for the year? Can I challenge you to pick these two words? Salt and light. That's who we are. That's our identity. We are a people that everywhere we go, everything that we do through the power of Christ within us, we are the salt and the light of Jesus. I've watched, um, I've observed the American church misunderstand its mission, its identity, and its purpose in 2020. Long before the mission of being salt and light is political or even cultural, it's personal. It's relational. Now listen, don't misunderstand me. I think being involved politically is very important. I love my country. I never miss an opportunity to vote, and I hope you won't either. But the moment that we begin to have our hope and our rest laid upon the identity of politics, we have missed the essence of the kingdom of God. We've missed it. When you look at the early church, they had every reason, they had every right to stand up politically. And they didn't. They were wildly persecuted. And what did they do? They carried forward the vision and the mission that they heard from their Savior to be salt and light in everyday life, everywhere they go. To not long for persecution, to not long for trial, to not long for disruption, but when God sovereignly brings it, to receive it. And say this is an opportunity for the light of Jesus to shine in the darkness.
That's the mission of the church. That's the identity of the church. That's who we are. Are there exceptions? Sure. But scripturally, why do I make such a big emphasis on relationally, that relationally is how we live this out? Because that's what Jesus did. That was his application every single time. So, we're going to dig in to Titus. And we're going to answer four questions over the next four weeks. And here's the four questions we're going to answer. How is the church to be led? What is the church to teach? What is the church to be centered on? And what is the church to be devoted to? That's where we're headed these next four weeks. We'll, we'll, we'll wrap up on January 31st. And then that night, Sunday, January 31st, we'll have a vision night. And we'll think about where God's leading us. In two, we'll, we'll hear about where God's leading us in 2021. So invite your friends, either here in person, online. Uh, this is going to be a series that is of utmost importance. As we prepare our hearts, our minds, and our lives to be salt and light in 2021. Let me pray. Father, thanks for this time together. Thank you for your word, O oh Lord. Thank you that it, um, it pierces us, it convicts us, it challenges us, and ultimately it encourages us. You, O oh Lord, our good shepherd, you lead us. And Father, we pray every day that you would lead us out of the, co- the, the fog of covid that you would lead us into a place in 2021 where we feel like we can breathe again and experience all that we knew life to be. We pray for that, Lord. We long for that. But we also say to you, O God, that if you choose not to do that, our mission is the same. Our identity is the same. You have tasked us, you have empowered us to be the salt and the light of the world. So thank you for that. We receive that with joy. So we sing to you now that we may build our lives upon you and you alone. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's sing together. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Sermon Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and to find other sermons from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.